In my family, I am the family historian. I maintain the genealogy and history of our family. It's a hobby of mine for, for years because I'm a sentimentalist. And it was interesting, and when I go back to look at my, my family tree, there's some interesting points. Some of you may have heard of an HBO miniseries called Band of Brothers that was a story about, that took place in World War II. One of the characters, it's based on a true story, one of the characters is Frank Perconti. Yes, there's a relation, a connection, and a story behind that. My family arrived in the United States in 1904, arriving at Ellis Island. And when I look back beyond that, back to the island of Sicily, going back 300 years, my family were servants of the nobility in Sicily. My name actually means for the count. Our family was servants to royalty and nobility. Little did they know or could foresee, 300 years later, one of their descendants would serve the king of kings. That's, that's our history. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And I'm sure you have similar stories in your family tree. But I would warn you, if you, if you pursue uh, genealogy and, and creating a family tree, be careful about shaking your family tree too hard because a few nuts will fall out. I know my family's not alone in that. So before we look at this morning's scriptures, which will be the generations of Adam, I thought it would be helpful to have a little background, lay a little foundation for why it's important to study Bible genealogies. Because after all, it's just a list of names, right? But we see the first reason is that the Lord included genealogies in his word. We see the genealogy of Cain, of Seth, something called the table of nations, as the descendants of Noah, Shem, Terah, exiles, David, and of course, Jesus. There are no extraneous verses in scripture. If it's in there, it's because the Lord has ordained that it's important. And we need to be paying attention to it. Now, some of the treasures in Scripture require a little bit more digging than others. When I started reflecting on God's Word in Genesis chapter 5 and considering, Lord, what, you, what would you have for us? I use a piece of software called a mind map, which allows me to capture my thoughts, my observations about Scripture and put them as dots on the screen, and then connect the dots as I see relationships. So I started out with a blank, black screen and ended up with this. If you would, Micah, put it on the screen. That is the result of spending time in prayer and study of God's word. What was just a list of names as the Spirit led me through his word and highlighting things and pointing things out I had to write them down furiously and then connect the dots to create and form these different relationships of the word. I would encourage you 
to slow down, take time, and meditate on God's word. If any of you are interested in learning how to use a mind map for Bible study, let me know. I'd love to put together a workshop. You know, I'm all about the the classes and the workshops. I could put something together. We could walk through an example or two as a class, then give you a homework assignment for one week, map out your own verses, and then come back the following week, and let's go through it. I have found this to be such a blessing for me to capture all the thoughts that occur as I'm studying Scripture. The next point on why we should be studying Bible genealogies is that there's actually five things that Bible genealogies show. The first is that God is actively working throughout history. Every generation that is recorded shows God's hand at work. For millennia, he had prepared the way for the Messiah. And that is represented with every single name that's in that genealogy, as we see in the New Testament Gospels. The next thing that Bible genealogies show is that God uses imperfect people for his purposes. The people listed in the geologies, genealogies had flaws. And yet they were used in the lineage of Jesus. We had time to look at the genealogies of Jesus, going from Adam all the way up to Jesus. You'd see it was good, bad, and ugly in that whole family tree. But the Lord wove all of that together to bring the Messiah. And if he can certainly use these imperfect people to bring the Messiah, he can certainly use you and I, who are even more imperfect, for his purposes in worshiping and serving him and serving others. The third thing we see in in Bible genealogies is God's history of grace and patience. As he used imperfect people, he knew they were imperfect. So he dispensed grace. We see that in David and Solomon. Flawed men, but had a heart after God. He demonstrated his long-suffering for those generations that were rebellious, and there were many. Extended his grace and patience. The fourth thing that Bible genealogies show is God's priority on family. It's all about relationships. He created Adam and Eve, and all people came from them. God didn't create more people. He didn't create millions of people who would be random and disconnected. There's accountability. Parents raise up and train their children. I'm reminded of the surveillance cameras that are around town on street corners and maybe on highways, all to keep people accountable. They don't hold a candle to the Italian and Jewish grandmas of the old neighborhood. (laughs) When I was growing up, if I got into some mischief down the block, sure enough, some grandma would open up her window, stick her head out, and start scolding me. 
And, it, and I, now I'm, I'm caught. I got to start walking home. And so as I'm walking home, she's still scolding me. Then I would see a window open in the building next to that. Another grandma sticks her head out, wanting to know what's the commotion. So the first grandma tells the second grandma what I did, and then she continues the scolding as I'm still walking home. Now repeat that for five different buildings, maybe eight. And it was like a relay race, and just tag, you're it, tag, you're it, and continuing to scold me for the entire walk home. I, I would refer to that as the walk of shame. By the time I got home, my mom had heard about it because the grandma next door was yelling, but she also received 10 phone calls about what, what mischief I had gotten into. Accountability. The genealogies offer that accountability. Genealogies are important because there's traceability to determine who is to receive inheritances. And also for service. Because we learned that only the Levites could be priests. So they needed to know who was their who was their Parents, who were their grandparents? What line were they from? Every person traces back to Adam. So Jesus' sacrifice is available to all. And fifth, the fifth reason why Bible genealogies are important because they show God keeps his promises God made promises and covenants with people based on their offspring. Genealogies are the receipts to show that God keeps his promises. Promises of the Messiah, promises of land, promises of prosperity, promises of protection. And third, like the rest of Scripture, the genealogies point to Jesus. Every family tree has a focus. It's usually the person compiling the family tree. So my family tree has me at the center and works all the way back. But with every generation, the number of people in the family tree doubles. So it's me, then I have parents, mother and father, and each one has mother and father. So the next generation, it goes from 2 to 4 to 8 to 16 to 32, 64, and so on. If you go back 20 generations, there are a million people in your family tree. So out of necessity, you have to prune that tree down. It can't just be spreading out. And we see the same, the same practical example in God's genealogies here that he provides in his word. They're trimmed down. The focus is Jesus. And here's an interesting point. After Jesus, the genealogies no longer serve a purpose. Notice that there's only two genealogies in the New Testament, both about Jesus, one in Matthew, one in Luke. And it's interesting to note that the phrase son of and father of appear 1,400 times in the Old Testament, but only 139 times in the New Testament. And in the New Testament, there's, all, there's a few references to genealogies, and they're kind of discouraged to be studied. The first is in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. 
As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And then in Titus chapter 3, verse 9, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Genealogies serve their purpose. In God's plan, it was to prepare the way for the Messiah and to provide the evidence that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. But now that he has come and those genealogies are recorded, there's no further need to study genealogies beyond what the Lord has already provided in his word. And with that as a background, let's examine the generations of Adam. So if you would, please turn to the book of Genesis chapter 5. And Micah, if you would put that diagram up. Thank you. I've kind of put this together to give a visual illustration of what we're about to read because it's kind of difficult to see a wall of text with numbers and names. And this provides a little bit of structure to what we're about to read. Genesis chapter 5, starting in verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered his son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam, after he fathered Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh, Seth lived, after he fathered Enosh, 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived, after he fathered Kenan, 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, after the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived, after he fathered Jared, 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived, after he fathered Enoch, 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. 
Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived, after he fathered Noah, 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Quite the list of names. And in, in these verses, we see some things that are noteworthy. It's not just a list of names, but there's other things embedded in there that we can see that let's take a look uh, for a few moments to uh, examine. The first is the repeated phrase, lived, number of years, and died. In chapter 4, we see man killing man. Cain killed Abel, and Cain's offspring Lamech killed a young man. But in chapter 5, verse 5, Adam died. This is the first death as a result of the curse. Because of the fall. Up to that point, they haven't experienced death. What was that like for them? We grieve for loved ones that we've lived with for 70 years or so. What was it like to live with family members for 930 years and then they die? Some might say, good riddance, it's about time. But if we love them and we grieve with them, 930 years. With each generation that died... God fulfilled his promise that people would die because of sin. If they thought he was fooling, if they thought he was faking, this proved that he wasn't. This was happening generation after generation. Speaking of years, what's the deal with their ages? Did they count time differently then? Was there a missing decimal point? Is the Bible an error? Show of hands, how many believe the Bible to be true? Another question, show of hands, how many people know the Bible is true? How many would want to know the answers to those, know the questions before raising your hand? 
I saw a lot of hands for both, and that's praise the Lord, because I know what that means. But I'm going to share uh, something with you for those who may not be certain, who may believe but not know. Faith is the belief in something that is not seen. Blind faith is the belief in something when there's no evidence to support it. Foolish faith is the belief in something when there is evidence to the contrary. True faith is the belief in something when there is some evidence to support that. The Christian faith is true faith. We study the scriptures, we test them, there's no error, so we believe. Biblical truth applied to our lives helps us know from a firsthand experience that the Bible is indeed true. We know scripture is true because we apply what we've read in scripture and it comes out exactly as the Lord has foretold. So our we believe and come to know that the scriptures are indeed God's infallible authoritative word. We attempt to dim diminish the greatness of God when we try to give natural explanation to supernatural events described in his word. We need to acknowledge that God is greater than us. He is greater than our ability to understand him. He can do things that we can't. He is not bound or confined by the natural sciences found in creation. He's above creation. Let God be God. Scripture has been proven true for the things that are verifiable. So we can trust the scriptures for the things that can't. We can have confidence. We can be confident that the ages recorded in his word are true, even though we can't understand it. And I've heard and read all sorts of explanations about how uh, the, the, the atmosphere was different and the gene pool was different back then. All of those explanations. And it could simply be that God was sovereign and allowed that to happen, authored that to happen, without any other explanation. I'm okay with that. Because my God is far greater than my ability to understand so be bold and unapologetic that Scripture says Methuselah lived 989 years. Everything else that we can verify in Scripture, we have tested and shown to be true. That must be true too. The next observation is this repetition of and had other sons and daughters. Except for Noah, all of his children are listed. Think about that. Other sons and daughters. A countless, nameless multitude of offspring. How many died in their sin? Forgotten in world history, but spending eternity in hell. According to the World Population Review, 166,000 people die each and every day. 166,000. How many of them die in rebellion and die in their sins? How, for how many of us will, will today be our last day here on earth? 
The third thing that was noteworthy in the generations of Adam is that Cain and Seth both had descendants named Enoch and Lamech. The only two names that appear on both ancestry lines. Is that significant? Maybe. But I won't go down that rabbit hole of speculation. It serves no purpose. However, it does point out the need for us to make sure we know who we're referring to and who we're talking about. How many of us have had conversations with people who make mention of God or Jesus or prayer? What are they referring to? We might assume it means the Lord God Almighty of the Scriptures and the Jesus of the Scriptures, but maybe not. We need to make sure. We need to know what, who we're referring to. I think that's the takeaway, at least for us, through this. Fourth observation is Methuselah and perhaps Lamech were alive when the flood arrived. Based on the timeline, it's clear that Methuselah was still around, but perhaps Lamech as well. They were alive when Noah and his family entered into the ark. How heartbreaking was that for Noah? Because everyone else rejected the, the, the call to repent. It was only Noah and his family. How heartbreaking was it for him to see his grandfather reject the truth as the flood waters came and refuse to enter the ark with him? The burden that we have for unsaved family members goes all the way back to Noah. We have a burden for our loved ones, our parents, our brothers, our sisters, maybe grandparents who don't know the Lord, who have not been saved. That's a burden for us. Noah experienced that burden. When we share the gospel with those around us and we tell them about how Dying in unbelief, dying in their rebellion against God will result in them spending eternity separated from God in a place called hell. Follow that up and let them know my fill-in-the-blank family member, my dad, my mom, my parents, my, my, my children, whoever it is that you love who are unbelievers, let them know that's where they're going to if they don't repent and believe. That this burden that we have for unsaved people includes our own family. That speaks loudly. It's not just some comfortable truth because, well, I've, I've got my salvation, how about you? You carry that same burden. Let them know that there's, everyone must come to the, to the place of repentance and belief in Christ to be saved. There are no exceptions. There's no loopholes for those, well, well you know, my cousin Jimmy, he... He accepted Christ last week, so I guess I'm okay. I don't need to. No, it doesn't work that way. It's a burden. And the fifth observation is that Cain's Enoch did not die but was taken. It's hard to overlook Enoch. He is the first where it's explicitly stated that he has walked with God. There's no mention of anyone else in the genealogy as having walked with God. Now, we all assume Adam walked with God. 
But scripture doesn't explicitly state that. So I think it's, it's noteworthy that Enoch was described as walking with God. It doesn't mean that Adam didn't. It just means that the Holy Spirit, putting together God's word, chose to explicitly state that Enoch walked with God. So now we drill down from the, the why study genealogies to let's look at the generations of Adam, and now we're zooming in on Enoch. Out of everyone on that list, Enoch stood, stands out. So what can we learn from him? There's a few things. In verse 24, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. God took him. Was that a euphemism for dying? Well, let's let Scripture explain Scripture. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5, By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found, because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. So now we see a little bit more revealed about Enoch here in the New Testament should not see death. Embedded among a long list of names where is recorded, and he died, is one who didn't. So the first lesson we can learn uh, from Enoch is that God taking Enoch is a biblical type or prophetic symbol for the rapture. Rapture is a supernatural event described in Scripture when Jesus appears in the clouds and he takes up all believers. Now, the Lord doesn't surprise anybody. He gives everyone a warning. He warned Adam in the garden, eat of every fruit except the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, else you die. He warned Adam. And then we'll see in the coming weeks, Lord willing, that the Lord raises Noah to preach righteousness of the judgment to come. Warning people, judgment is coming. We look at the entire Old Testament, all the prophets, warning of the judgment to come. And we see even in the New Testament, Jesus warned, on that day, many will say, Lord, Lord. And I will, tell, I will say to you, depart from me, I never knew you. Warning after warning. The Lord never surprises anyone. But from the very beginning of time, he warns people. He promises things that will happen, both good and uh, not so good. Judgment. And so, this example of Enoch shows it is possible for God to take up someone and not die. It gives us hope. The rapture is the next event in God's prophetic timeline. Are you watching for it? Are you ready for it? Do you have questions about it? It's helpful to know. The next observation, a lesson we can learn from Enoch's life is Enoch is an example of God's eternal blessing on those who live a life that pleases him. 
in the midst of people before and after and around him who were in sin, Enoch lived a life that pleased God. The hope, the joyful anticipation that we have is to know that living a life that pleases the Lord is the evidence for ourselves that we are saved. Should the Lord tarry and we're not taken up in the rapture, then when we breathe our last here on earth, we will be in heaven with him forever. He promised that and he keeps all his promises. The third lesson, Enoch is a model for modern day believers. And we have more to see about Enoch. So if you would, please turn to the book of Jude. which is towards the end of the New Testament. I find it interesting that Enoch appears in Genesis and also in Jude. It's a short book, so it might be difficult to find. Pages stick together. You could lose it. Jude chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Beloved, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Uh, down to verse 10. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they are, all, by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are the hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all, the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Wow. Jude warned of false teachers, false prophets, false believers. 
and Enoch had proclaimed that millennia before. This week, I experienced a vicious and personal attack from someone in the church. But not just me. It was directed also at my wife Eva and our children. We have thick skins, but this cut through that and pierced our hearts. It really, really hurt us. For the first time in 20 years of pastoral ministry, I seriously considered stepping down and calling it a day. But God, but God the Holy Spirit snapped me out of it, brought me to the book of Joshua chapter 1, where he exhorted Joshua to be strong and courageous, stand firmly on the word, only be strong and very courageous. Don't be fearful, do not dismay, wherever you go, the Lord is going to be with you. In other words, fight. pastoral care team loves you. I love you. And I fight for you. I go against the grain. I go against the flow to prepare and provide resources and opportunities to help grow in Christ. Do you love this church? I'm not talking about the name. I'm not talking about the building. Look around. Brothers and sisters, We are the church. So when I say, do you love the church? Do we love each other? If you love this church, if you do, well, then you better fight for it. Because the enemy is on the prowl, and he's picking us off one or two at a time. We need to fight. We need to fight for unity. Because there are some are looking to divide us. We need to fight for fellowship because there are some who want to isolate us from one another. We need to fight for grace because there are some who are going to condemn us with their legalism. We got to fight for humility because there are those with self-centered attitudes who complain and grumble about the way we pray, about the way we worship, about the way we Share God's word the way we, get, we gather in small groups and a long laundry list of things that they have to grumble and complain about. Most of all, we need to fight for love. The Lord Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. And by this, All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We need to fight for love. And I know there are many of you. I'm looking around, and I know your names. I see you. You're already in that fight. And I am so thankful, and I know the rest of the team is thankful for you 
and praising God for your love for the Lord and the love for his people. Keep on fighting that good fight. Invite others to join us in the fight. There may be some who will take offense to what I just said. And if, and if you do, please don't complain to others. Please don't shoot off emails. Please don't even go to the other pastors. Please come to me. You know I listen. You know I'll receive correction if it's applicable. But let's love one another. Let's be on the same page for God's glory. The enemy wants to see us squabbling and fighting. But it gives great glory to the Lord and is a blessing to us. When we look past our own selfish desires, our own personal preferences to submit to the greater good of unity and love and fellowship. I just thought it would be helpful for you to know that. Enoch's words were preserved for thousands of years and quoted by Jude. Enoch preached repentance and the judgment to come for those who live ungodly thoughts, speak ungodly words, and take ungodly actions. We are to let our conduct preach the gospel. We're to lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Not the grumblers, malcontents, loudmouthed boasters that Enoch warned about. And I'll leave you with this final thought. Enoch is remembered for eternity in God's family history as a man who lived a life that pleased God. How will you be remembered? If you're saved, then you have the power to live a life that pleases God. You have God the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, living in you, giving the power to live out that life that pleases the Lord and blesses others. If you're not saved, do you know where you'll go when you have lived X number of years and died? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much in Jesus' name for your infallible, authoritative, eternal word. It's perfect in every way. Lord, as we saw this morning, even, even in a simple list of names and ages and offspring, there is deep truth that is applicable for us today, thousands of years later. Lord, I pray for all of us that we would slow down in our time in your word, reflect on your word, and receive the rich treasure of wisdom and knowledge that is found in there, and even a simple list of names and ages. Help us to not just see those things, but even more importantly, to apply them in our lives, that the time spent in your word would change us, cause us to think differently, speak differently, act differently. 
that because of the time spent in your word, we would be more like Jesus. That the more time we spend in your word, the more in love we would be with you. The more we would want to emulate you and obey you and tell others about you. Lord, we thank you so much for the new life we have in Christ because of Jesus' death on the cross. But he didn't stay dead. Lord Jesus, you rose on the third day, demonstrating victory over hell, sin, and death. Thank you, Jesus, for that eternal life that you promised to all who would repent and believe. May others come to the saving knowledge of you as Lord and Savior before you come for your church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.